Uh, great to be here this evening, Christopher. Mark, thank, thank you for the invite. And, uh, um, I love marriage sessions. Unfortunately, I must apologize for someone who could not you know, make it this evening. Um, uh, we very early on in our, early on in our journey, we, we, we developed a love for equipping around these kind of spaces um, <clears throat> to equip around you know, issues of the issue of marriage. Um, we've reflected on our, on our journey and really I've found that uh, inside of the marriage journey um, or marriage teaching or equipping, the best way to do, it, to do it is to look at what God is doing inside of your own life and, and take that, um, uh, use yourself as a guinea pig, take that and transport it to others and equip them. So um, a lot of what I'm going to be sharing is what, you know, I've walked through and is what Zamo and I has, you know, have walked through. And hopefully it is, it, is, it is valuable and it releases an impartation of Christ in, in your hearts. Um, so I assume we, we have couples. I know there's, there was one guy from LSA, Christopher Amaste, who, who insisted he wanted to come. He's single. So I had said that when he walks in and they ask his spouse, he must just say she's in the bathroom. <laughs> he, he said he wanted, he says he, feel, he feels something coming. That's what he said. That's what he told me. So, um, so uh, you know, we'll see if he makes it this evening. Um, I want to start this off by just have us check in. It's been a, a long day. Has it been a long day? And uh, we've gone through all sorts of stuff. Uh, it's, uh, what is it? It's the Wednesday. It's the 15th. Some of us got paid. And maybe after this, we're going out. We, <laughs> you know, it's going to be. But I want, I want, you know, as a way of bringing us into the space, um, I, want, I want us to check in. And we have um, a slide that we're going to put up. Just, it's, it's really about a cycle of marriage. It's, it's a cycle of our life in Christ. So there it is. So I can see there. What, what I see there is what's reflecting. Ah, that's it. I get it. This is a smart room. Um, I, I want us to check in. Let's begin by checking in. Um, and I want us to map our, the current state of our marriage. And how we want to do that is by using the life of Christ. He is the model. He is the example. He is the ultimate picture of our lives and of our marriages and families. And we look to him to see what he's gone through to understand what we're going through. Uh, without Christ, life would be absolutely difficult and impossible. Um, Christ goes through four cycles inside of his own life, or four phases. Um, it's the first phase is a phase of crucifixion. He's crucified, and the crucifixion is not nice, right? It's insult, it's beating, it's pain, it's all sorts of things. It's public humiliation. Uh, he's, he's stripped naked, you know, Soldiers are saying all sorts of funny things to him. There's pain, there's shame, there's suffering. It's, it's a form of spiritual attack, really. And in the context of marriage, I want us to be thinking about if we are going through the crucifixion right now, is that because of internal issues or external issues? Internal meaning that it's between husband and wife. In other words, we are the cause of the crucifixion. External meaning it's coming from the environment. It's been covid it's unemployment, it's economic hardship, it's all of those things. And those things do you know, bring pressure upon our marriages, right? So the first phase is the crucifixion. The second phase is death. So Christ actually dies. You know, it comes to that moment where he releases his last breath and he dies. And, and, and uh, metaphorically, that can speak of being immobilized by life. Having come to a place where we are absolutely unable and maybe we're sitting here as a couple, we believe in God for a miracle. Maybe our marriage is really at a state of crisis, in a state of crisis. We believe in God, and you know what, anything that happens from now onwards has to be the hand of God. Otherwise, this thing is done. <clears throat> the next phase is, is, is the resurrection. It's good news. He actually comes back to life. Uh, the thing about death is that Christ is immobilizing, needs a power from the Father to bring him back to life. So, you know, life comes back to him, 
And, and that's a picture of grace arriving in your marriage, arriving in your life. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit starting to hover over your issues and brooding and bringing some form of life, you know. And then, of course, the last one is ascension. That's where we all want to be. Ascension is victory. Ascension is authority over life. Ascension is your enemies. Your issues are now under your foot or under your feet. And you have come to a place of conquest. You have conquered. You have fought. You have prayed. You have believed. You've maybe gone through counseling. You've read the word of God. You've believed every teaching that's come your way every Sunday. And you've come to that place where you feel like, man, I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. Or as a couple, we are seated at the right hand of the Father. <clears throat> and, you know, things are, things are great. Now, I want you to think about, about your marriage in that context, in, those four, in the context of those four phases. Paul does say, by the way, in Philippians 3, that we should know Christ, know him in his death, so that we may also know him in his resurrection, right? So, in other words, in Philippians 3, there's this idea that we, 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 we conform to these cycles of Christ ourselves. In other words, the scripture presupposes that you and I are going to find ourselves walking through some level of crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension, and that cycle repeats itself until you and I are perfected and matured in Jesus and you know, find ourselves in that, in that glorious state. The question is, where is my marriage? You know, for Zamo and I, <clears throat> Zamo is not here this evening. Where is your marriage in terms of crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension? Now, we can make that evaluation. We don't have to share notes right now. We can share notes later. Someone might say, we're in death. Another person might say, it's ascension. <laughs> the person that says ascension, you can't blame them. That's what they... <laughs> Look, this exercise might land you into a pastoral, a pastor's office to try and reconcile and, you know, your, your perspective of where, where are things inside of your marriage. But this is an exercise that I want us to think about. Should we just ponder for a moment and just think about this? Spirit of God, I pray that as we start this session, you'll breathe into our hearts and show us a picture of where we are in the cycle of life, in the cycle of marriage. Some of us sitting here, God, are in a state of crucifixion. We are going through some level of public humiliation, of pain, of shame, of spiritual attack. Some of us have come to a place where we're completely immobilized and no longer, you know, are very clear that if something were to happen, it would have to be the hand of God. I believe you this evening for the hand of God to touch your people this evening. To release a breath of life, of resurrection power. And we pray for that. That's where we want to be, Jesus. Resurrection. That's the good news. Where there's an announcement about a marriage, a couple, that may have been witnessed that ah, this couple is going for death. They're going for the ultimate death. They're going for a divorce. But God, I pray that you'll turn things around this evening. Because you work through the power of conviction. Bring resurrection power. But Father, resurrection is not enough. Where we want to be is to be seated next to you. We want to be in a place where our enemies are under our feet. Where we feel a sense of conquest, of victory, of authority. Where we've seen the workings of God inside of our own lives. That not only do we witness the miracles, but also the, way, the ways of God. Of how you've redeemed us. That that leaves a mark of wisdom for the future, for the next battle, for the next challenge. That we will not repeat the same mistakes and the same issues we may have done before, you know, in times past. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Our marriages take place and we steward our marriages in the context of Christ. It's important to frame this and to frame these things. Marriage is one of those things that always will be expressed within a particular context. Context of culture. 
as a black South African, African male, there's a culture from which I come. There's a culture from which Mark comes. There's a culture from which Christoph comes. And, you know, marriage or culture very powerfully can impose itself in marriage. So often it happens that as believers we're doing so well, you know, single, loving Jesus until we get married. <laughs> and oftentimes, or maybe oftentimes, marriages can be coffins of our faith. They can facilitate moments of death. And that's really sometimes because we've carried these lingering issues of culture. They have just, they had just not been tested until you have somebody you live with in the context of covenant. Yeah, and the stuff begins to manifest and stuff begins to come out. I want to pose this challenge in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The scripture we know very well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things have become new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Our creation meaning is a new formation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things, let's say all things, and that would include marriage, have become new. The, the last thing we want is to find ourselves in a tension, this tension between the new salvation and the old marriage. And this pull, this, this tug of war between who I am as a believer in Christ, walking and believing him for newness, but finding that my marriage is actually stale and old. And that disconnect is what we want to break. In the message translation, that same verse says, anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start. Let's say a fresh start. And that's why we believe in God for a fresh start in our marriages. Because if we're talking new creation people and new creation believers, we equally then must talk about new creation marriages um, inside of our lives. And that word new, by the way, being the word that means qualitative newness. It's a quality of life that God is wanting to impart into you and I. It's got to show that you and I are in Christ, are saved. Our marriages have got to show it. There is no point in walking with Jesus, but only to find that my marriage is not showing it. Newness, this qualitative newness, that word new also means new and better. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a word of distinction. It's a word where God has to compare between church, those who have come to know Jesus and those who are yet to know Jesus, and find that there is a qualitative or there's a distinction in condition, in quality, between those who are walking with Jesus and those who are not walking with Jesus. If anybody is in Christ, he or she has a new and a better quality of life that is formed after the image of Jesus. If anybody is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he or she has a new and a better quality of life formed in the image of Jesus. And that's just really to frame us as we get into this. Well, I'll put just the next image the next image really captures um, my journey with Zamor and what we learned and what God taught us and what we teach generally in marriage sessions. Um, I, my mind operates very much in graphics. I think God understands it by now, and that's how he talks to me. So I see graphics a lot, and that's how I understand the things of God. And that graphic is really a capture of, of the key components of marriage. So marriage, if I were to interpret that for you, marriage is built um, or hangs through on the core of spirituality, devotion, and covenant, the covenant of love. That's the core, right? Uh, our spirituality, our devotion to Jesus, and the covenant. It hangs on that. And around that, you have intimacy, you have companionship, you have partnership, you have administration. Intimacy, I think when I talk a little bit about intimacy this evening, um, 
and how the Bible sees intimacy and defines intimacy. Companionship is simply that we actually, if we love one another, we should also like each other. We're companions, right? You do like your spouse. You do like your husband. You do like your, your wife. There's a liking there. Um, if you don't like your spouse, then you're in big trouble. You should learn to li- like them. Don't just love them because, well, the Bible commands you to love them. You know, you love your neighbors, you love yourself. They, they surely don't belong there quite, you know. Then, then it, the thing goes as far as love your enemies. <laughs> you know, that, that's the... <laughs> that's the agape love. That's the, God can command that love. We are commanded to love our enemies. We are commanded to love our neighbor, even if you don't like them. Um, but this companionship, that's what we see between Adam and Eve. They were actually companions. They were friends. Then there's partnership in the purpose of God. Because there is utility in that marriage. That marriage is facilitating something bigger than just um, our you know, bond and bills and, and children. There is a purpose that is, that is pressing upon us. Administration is really how we manage life together. Uh, how we manage life together. So intimacy um, is spiritual, it's emotional, it's sexual. Um, companionship is friendship. Partnership is purpose. You know, God commanded both of them in Genesis 1:28 to rule over. And they were to do a bunch of things together. Uh, there was a purpose that was hanging over this couple in Genesis. Then administration is that they had to administer this environment. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know, in 2023, um, you know, there's children, there's this and that, there's, there's things, there's errands, there's chores, there's all sorts of things to administer. So administration is important. And then what glues everything together is the process of integration. We are progressively integrating as a couple, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother. The man shall leave his father. The man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one person. The man shall... So on the day of, 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 of your wedding, you, yes, you express covenant and that is facilitates oneness, but that thing is actually ongoing way beyond the day of your wedding. You are integrating because you've got to discover each other. You have to integrate your values. You have to bump into issues to, to integrate. You have to maybe fight a little bit to integrate. The issue is not fighting. The issue is how do you manage those moments? You take a few steps back. To, okay, what's happened? Um, how do we, you know, and allow, allow the word of God and the spirit of God to arbitrate the process. So that you agree on the values that will guide this particular family going forward. So really problems and challenges are just divine opportunities if managed well. To sit down and reflect, to discover, I did not know about this about you. And you can't say, I'm not like that because that's what showed up and that's what manifested. What manifested in a situation is who you are. And so the next thing is to own up, okay, I didn't know I was like that, own up and sit and reflect on that and agree on a value. Because behind every fight between a husband and a a wife is a cry for a value. There's a value that drives the fight. Now the thing is, Integration says that we need to integrate these values. Some values are good, some values are bad. Yeah? And some values come, came from auntie, some values came from mommy, from grandfather. They've been embedded in our minds for a long time. We didn't even know they were there until a situation happens. And so this thing of integrating, of coming together, and of, of having uh, conversations of resolution after each and every hump that we walk through, conversations of resolution, you say, okay, this situation reveals this about me, it reveals this about you, what's the value that we agree on, and, you know, let's agree on the value and move forward, and that value is now going to 
rule the affairs of his house. And if anybody deviates from that value, it becomes a problem, right? You're frustrating the process. That's when you report them to the, to the pastor. That's what pastors are there for. You come to Mark and say, Mark, you know, we agreed on this. The person. <laughs> and Mark will solve it. <laughs> he will sort it out. <laughs> so that's just, that graphic is really just what I've just shown you is what we've learned over the years. Uh, as I was, I'm speaking this evening, uh, you can kind of frame me, you know, he's inside of the box of intimacy right now. He's inside of administration, whatever the case may be. I just thought I would show you. Basically, when you see that graphic, you're seeing my brain. You know, you're seeing my brain. Okay, I want to I wanna start this off. So we've checked in, we've looked at the, we've tried to map up our marriages in terms of the cycles of Christ. Uh, we, we've, we've challenged one another that we are new creation people, therefore we should produce new creation marriages. And we've looked at this graphic that, you know, God has shown us, shown me over, over the years and, um, and, and, and we actually want to write a book out of this because I think that's going to be important going forward. Um, so I want to I wanna start this off by reviewing the marriage covenant. How many of us remember that we started this journey with the exchange of vows, right? And part of the exercise that I do inside of marriage sessions is to simply review and revise the marriage vows because the terrible thing is that we forget them. And the marriage vows are really meant to shape um, uh, uh, our journey going forward. They are, we don't say them every day, but they do drive what happens in the marriage. Um, so we do begin the marriage journey with the exchange of vows. We make this covenant between the husband and the wife. Um, it's a covenant made out of love, but often it is made in a state of character deficit. You know, when we're getting married, we love one another. We love each other as husband and wife, but there's a lot of character that needs to be built there. You know, that's the reality. And over the years, as we post the wedding day, we then have to, you and I have to nurture our character because if our character is lagging behind in terms of the demands of life, that's when you start having problems. Let me say that again. If the demands of life go ahead of your character formation, you are going to have problems. Say it again. If the demands of life go ahead of your character formation, you are going to have problems. And so, the Spirit of God preempts your journey. He knows what uh, Christoph and Margarita are going to be going through five years from now. And he starts working inside of their heart to prepare them for the five years later. And if we're robbing the process, that's when we're creating problems. Because when the moment comes, when the moment comes, that's not the time to grow. The moment must find you having grown already. It's a little bit like uh, Noah building the ark, right? The boat. You're not going to start building the boat when the rain comes. You have to start building the boat years before the flood. So that when the flood comes, you're actually ready to take it. And so sometimes when challenges come, we're not ready because we have robbed the processes of God and the convictions of God inside of our own hearts. And that becomes a problem. <clears throat> so one day, depending on your wedding date, you would have said something like this. As a groom, doesn't have to be the ex exact same words, but it's something like this. So for us men, husbands, from this time forward, I, Robert Ntuli, take you, Zamon Ntuli, to be my wife. And this is my covenant with you. I promise to love you as Christ loved the church. I want to just pause there. I promise to love you as Christ loved the church. Not as culture dictates and imposes. Not, not what friends suggest is the love you qualify for. 
but as Christ loved the church. That's, in other words, I'm saying I have a standard of love. And that standard is not going to be this world. That standard is not going to be some, some magazine. That standard is Christ. Then I would have said I will follow the, the example of Christ who went to the cross for the glory of his church. The Christ who went to the cross for the glory of his church by sacrificing myself for your spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being. I will follow the example of Christ who went to the cross because that's how he loved the church. How did he love the church? He went to the cross for the glory of his church by sacrificing myself for your spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being. I was, I can't find myself on the opposite end of that process, working against your spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being. I promise to be joined and accountable to Christ and to his body at all times, and to follow the teachings of the Lord in the church, so that I may grow as a man of God and as a husband to you. I will diligently seek to understand and follow the way of the Lord, in order to guard and to protect our family. I will at all times seek to understand and submit to the will and wisdom of God in the administration of the affairs of our family. I will not defile our marriage bed, but will honor you by being faithful to you as my wife. I will share my life completely with you, completely with you, and we will work together to advance the kingdom of God. I will love you, and cherish you unto death. And these things I swear to you before the Lord and these witnesses. As a man, you would have said something along those lines. It doesn't have to be the same, same, same words, but something along those lines. As a lady, you would have said something like this. From this time forward, I, Zamon, will take you, Robert, to be my husband. And this is my covenant with you. I promise to love you and to love and respect you. I will submit to you as you submit unto Christ, as you submit unto Christ. I promise to be joined and accountable to Christ and to his body at all times and to follow the teachings of the Lord in the church so that I may grow as a woman of God. So there's a commitment to growth there. And as a wife to you, I will diligently seek to understand and follow the way of the Lord in the administration of our household. I will be diligent in seeking out the will of the Lord so that I may be an effective partner to you in the family. I will support you, cooperate with you, and intercede for you as you exercise headship over our family. I will not defile our marriage bed, but will honor you by being faithful to you as my husband. I will share my life completely with you, and will work together to advance the kingdom of God. I will love you and cherish you unto death, and these things I swear to you before the Lord and these witnesses. Now, these words must be near We've got to constantly hear them in our, in our ears and hearts. They need to propel and drive what happens in the marriage. Because there's a covenant that we made, <clears throat> much more important. It's a covenant of love that was made before the Lord. And, and I recite these words in marriage, marriage sessions just to help us to check whether we are still on track in as far as those words are concerned. Are we still operating, our, you know, is our life still flowing within the context of the covenant or something else now drives me and you? That's a big question. <clears throat> so a reflection on the marriage vows I recommend to couples all the time. It's very, very important to recite because a violation of the marriage vows is not an issue between husband and wife. It is an issue between you and the Lord. It is an issue of your devotion to Jesus. It is not an argument between you and your spouse. It is a covenant that you made before the Lord, before a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore a violation of which becomes an issue, a matter between you and Jesus. So it speaks into my devotion. It speaks into my walk with the Lord. Some of these things are not things to be argued between husband and wife. They need you and I to take a few steps back to go and be with Jesus and to have him reaffirm what he wants us to do and who he wants us to be in the marriage. Now let's look at the pictures of marriage. 
the pictures of marriage. The story of creation reveals these massive things that God creates, but at the center of which is this husband and wife, Adam and Eve. In some sense, they represent the institution of marriage and family, but in some sense, they also represent humanity at large. Um, you know, and, and that's, how we, that's how we understand the word Adam. Adam is, in some sense, not a gender-specific word, but it is also mentioned in reference to the male, the husband. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. In verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Let me just send out a disclaimer that in looking at this, we're not trying to describe household roles and chores and all those things. Remember, this is taking place long before the uh, household chores as you and I know them. So this is not about who cooks and who washes the dishes. And this is more about postures and identities. This is God defining the posture of the man and the posture of the woman within the context of marriage. So what, what do we see with the introduction of man in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15? The man is created to be a steward and a servant. He is created to be a steward and a servant. He's sent and is placed in the garden to work it and to take care of it. There is the issue of stewardship there that is happening inside of that context. And there's the issue of serving, service, of serving the environment. In other words, the man is right at his creation. is created with an outlook, you know, with an attitude where he is looking outside of himself and he constantly has to ask the question, how do I serve my environment? How do I improve my environment? What value do I bring to my environment? He is a protector. Um, that word to, to keep it means to, to be the hedge, to be the fence, to be a, a framework of protection and safety. That's what men bring to their environment. He is a very hedge of his environment. He's keeping things together. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. On the other hand, in Genesis 2 verse 18, the wife is broad and the phrase that is used is the phrase suitable helper. Suitable helper. The word helper means to surround and to encourage. To surround, to envelope and to encourage, to bring warmth. That's what ladies do. That's what God created you. That's your gifting. Help us so to surround and to encourage. And suitable means to have presence, to have capacity, and to have a voice. And so God in Genesis 2.18 is not bringing some um, um, uh, uh, less than uh, being to the environment to run around with some little chores that is expected to be this suitable being, it means to, to, to manifest, to, to stand shoulder to shoulder in relation to your husband, to have presence, to have capacity, and to have a voice. So I'm a firm believer in strong women. Women have to be strong because they were created to be strong. So on the one hand, the man is a steward, he's a servant, he is the hedge of his environment. He provides protection over his environment. On the other hand, the woman, the wife, surrounds and encourages. She presents presence, capacity, and she has a voice. So the man has this stewardship instinct over the environment. That's, that's what comes naturally for men. That's how God created us to be. He has this stewardship 
not, not in a controlling sense, but stewardship as in a sense of responsibility for the environment. He uses his character, his character to guard his environment. What provides the hedge is his own character. And if you were the devil and you knew that, what would you do to men? Make them irresponsible and immoral. Because there's nothing as unsafe as an immoral man. There's nothing as unsafe as an irresponsible man. And what, you know, our families need to feel and our wives need to feel around us, man, is a sense of safety. That sense of safety is not because you did uh, uh, some academic, you have some academic qualification in administration. It is really the function of your character. It is a thing that your woman knows that even if you're not around, she's safe with you. That you could be gone for a week, she is safe with you. That sense of safety, that, that instinct in the woman, that sense that I am safe with my husband, even if he's not in front of me. There's a sense of safety. Because Eve has to feel safe. But on the other hand, Eve brings this warmth she envelops with her soul. She brings um, the gift of, of warmth to the environment. There is ambience that comes with the woman as she encourages the environment, which means that the currency of the woman is her soul. And if you, if you were the devil and you understood this, what would you do? Bruise the woman. Break her. Break her. And wound her soul. And so the world is filled, is full of broken women who are trying to bounce back against the brokenness. Now, Peter, the apostle, would pick up later in 1 Peter chapter 3 and say, and said, Woman, make wives, make yourselves beautiful, not by cosmetic beauty, but by the beauty of your soul. And the word beauty is the word cosmos, which means order. To be orderly, to have an orderly soul as a woman. There's nothing as scary, ladies, as a woman with a chaotic soul. Because you don't know what button she's going to press. When? You live in a, const in a state of constant fear. That's when men check out and go to the sports bar. What Solomon says in Proverbs, right? It's like a constant drop. You know, when a roof is leaking, what do you do? Keep moving. You're like... <laughs> it's leaking there. I, I need to move a little bit. You shift everything because you don't want to be in the, in, the, in the area where there's a drop. Solomon had oh, how many wives? 700. He understood this. <laughs> I mean, there's no other guy to understand that other than Solomon, man. <laughs> so it says, make yourselves beautiful. Not that, you know, the outer beauty is not important. But make yourselves beautiful by the decoration of your soul. And the word beauty being the word cosmos, which is the word orderly, as in the order of creation. It means I know that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning and it's going to set in the afternoon. That's what it means. And so, a woman is an emotional being that emotion has to flow in an orderly manner. On the other hand, the man, the man has to be this hedge and be the protector, bring the safety. And again, please, I'm not describing here household chores. I'm describing postures positions and identities. You know, long before there were things to do. You know, that, that's not the issue. That, that is for you to decide who washes the dishes and who cooks. Now, you can sit and discuss that and discuss your schedule and this is how we're going to flow. Don't let the culture define it for you. So that's what we see. The man is a steward servant. And so when men 
have lost their sense of serving and of stewardship, but want to be served, that's when you, have, you know there's a problem. And again, certain cultures will impose certain things. But the wife, on the other hand, brings encouragement, ambiance. As soon as Mrs. Eve shows up, there is character to the environment. There is identity, there is an ambiance that her soul brings. And that's your transaction point. Any man that's been married for more than a year has a proper perspective of what beauty looks like. Yeah, is that true, man? Any man that's been married more than a year knows what true beauty and the value of true beauty. It's not really the looks. It's the beauty of the soul. So a wise woman builds her house and a foolish one breaks it. You bring, ladies, the ambience of, of our soul, which means that as ladies, what's our prayer to Christ Fix my soul. Make me beautiful for my men. Give me character. Give me some spiritual perfume. Make, make me attractive to him. L let him want to hang around with me. What's this? But for us men is God build my character. May, let me be faithful to my wife. Let, let, let her feel a sense of safety every time she's around me. That's the first picture that we see. And we jump to Ephesians 5, the second picture of marriage. Everybody got that? Yeah. And then Paul, you know, Paul, Paul is an interesting guy. He's going to teach you about marriage, teach you about how to raise kids. You know, he's, he's going to teach women how to be women. But he's like, Paul, man, sure. <laughs> What about you, man? <laughs> He's an interesting character. But, you know, you better listen to Paul. He's a wise guy. He has a revelation from God. So Ephesians 5, he begins to outline the structure of marriage. And he says, um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So he sets Christ as a standard of love. Not myself, not Robert. I can't feel like I'm doing so well. Hey, Mark? Like, you know, I'm doing so well loving Zamo right now. Christ, Christ needs to tell me that. Christ is the standard. So the romantic story of the kingdom sends the men to the cross. Because Christ loved the church by going to the cross. And what is the cross? The cross is a place of death. It's a place of sacrifice. There's nothing as terrible as a man who can't sacrifice. Who can't think beyond himself who is self-absorbed, was the man must live in a perpetual, perpetual state of the crucifixion and the cross. Christ loved the church by going to the cross. So dead sacrifice and facilitating cycles of redemption in the home. And yes, Paul says the man is the head, but let's remember, man, that headship that the Bible talks about is delegated authority. We are borrowed that authority for one reason, and one reason only, to steward the will of God in the family. So we have to be dead to our self-agenda and have to carry this authority from the Lord Jesus really to steward the will of God. In other words, there has to be the absence of the agenda of the flesh in a man if we are to be truly men in the marriage. And then it says, wives must submit to, you know, to their husbands as church submits to Christ. And the point of that submission is the wife is not expected to submit to masculinity of the man. Wives, you are submitting to the portion of Christ in your guy. And if you indeed are the suitable helper for that man, the portion of Christ in him is your portion too. Remember, we are assuming that this couple is match made from heaven, right? God brought you together and they put something inside of Christoph's heart that is actually inside of Margaret's heart. And so what Margaret submits to is 
not the masculinity of Christoph, but that dimension of Christ that is in his heart. That is what we submit to. And that word submit is not a word that means to be inferior. It means to place under in an orderly fashion. It's a word of structure. It's a word of order. It's a word that describes a flow of life within the family. God works through order, structure and order. So the woman is not, in that sense, is not inferior to the man, but is placed in a yielded position in order to, for the life of God to flow. So the picture I always use to describe that word to submit is for those of us who drive, hopefully all of us drive here, is that if you are on-ramping onto the highway, you have to wait for the traffic, right? But it does not mean that you're not going to get into the highway. You're just avoiding collision. So in other words, submission is an act of wisdom. It is the facilitation of the orderly flow of life. It, it, it is exercised, really, out of a place of discernment. You can't submit to that which you can't discern. Otherwise, what are you submitting to? Yeah. If I'm on-ramping, I see that there's a car coming, then I wait for the car to pass and then in order for me to get onto the highway. We know from Scripture that God sometimes can jump into the family through all sorts of you know, ways. And, um, and the, the, the Sarah is the pattern of you women, ladies. It says, make yourselves beautiful like Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And she was pretty strong. Eh? I mean, she, she spoke things. She told him, get rid of this Ishmael. And he wasn't happy. He went to God and said, God, and God said, well, Sarah is correct. Listen to her. So we are talking about women that can hear the voice of God. That submit not from a place of absence of knowledge. You can't submit to that which you can't discern. There has to be value in submission. You submit to that which you can discern inside of your own heart. So submission is therefore an active process. We're not talking about passivity, ladies. And I'm um, just letting the man do what, what the man does. It's an active process. You're hearing together, but yielded. Hearing together, but yielded. Because you're always looking for that thing called Christ in the family. Because you are like Sarah, you are also guarding. You are, you are also, if Abraham is making a wrong, wrong move here, it's like, actually, we need to get rid of this Hagar and Ishmael. That's what God wants to do now. And, you know, Abraham catches up later about that. That's what happens. So submission is an active process, ladies. It requires discerning ladies, discerning women. We need to be able to be in tune with, with the Lord. But yield that's placed correctly in the flow of life. And yet... Uh, an equal partner, an equal priest in the home. It's quite a fluid process. Spiritual things are like that, right? And we are not expected by God to submit or to yield ourselves to anything that is ungodly. We are submitting to Christ because the word says is the head of the man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man, right? Which means that which means that uh, who is the first person to submit in the process of submission? It's the man. And I believe strongly that submitted men will always have and produce beautiful marriages. You know, the problem with us men, we're not submitted to Christ, we're not, submit, we're not submitted to the church, but we want submission at home. There's a, there's a degree of hypocrisy there. Nobody will speak to us, but we want our wife to, to submit herself. Men have to model submission. The head of the man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man. If, you can model, if I can model submission well to Zamo, it's not going to be an issue for her to submit to me. In any case, this is not about the battles of who has more power than who. This is about the trading of the dimension of Christ in the family. The will of the Lord is what we're stewarding. 
God puts the order because God works with order and arrangement. The Trinity is like that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, but in that ranking order. You never say Son, Father, Holy Spirit. You don't say, well, I feel like, today I feel like starting with the Holy Spirit. It always flows in that way. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, when things go wrong in the Garden of Eden, really, who was the first person to do something wrong? It was Eve. When God shows up, who does he call? Eve, where are you? No. Adam, where are you? He tries to jump. He says, he's a woman. And God would not have it. Because you are the ultimate guardian of this environment. I instructed you to instruct your environment. And the thing goes on like that, and that's how God works. And I know we live in a world and a culture that is very hostile to these values, but this is the word of God. It works this way in the word of God. We can argue with it, but 50 years later we realize it's truth. Hopefully we don't realize when we appear before the judgment seat of Jesus. It is the truth. We live in a very hostile culture, but this is the truth. This is the word of God. And that's how God defines these things. So the man must exercise that headship, must love from a place of the cross. The man must constantly put himself under the test of sacrifice. Constantly. It's about death, man. It's about sacrifice. It's about facilitating cycles of redemption in the home. It's not about our agenda. It's not about our masculinity. And for us ladies, it's not about being, you know, inferior to the man. It's about order. That word submission is a word that means there's orderly flow. There's a cosmos in this family. There's a way that life flows. We have a highway and we have on-ramping mechanisms. But these two people, the husband and the wife, are both called to discern Christ. The common issue that we are after is Christ. It's not about winning an argument. I should never win in the home. Zamo should never win. Christ must always win. The values of Christ. Who is Christ? His values, his principles, his, his will, his preferences, his thoughts as articulated in the word of God. And if we feel we don't understand it, go to the pastor to understand it. Attend Sunday to understand it. Go and pray to understand. Read the word of God to understand it. Because this is our reference point. But that's the thing that we are stewarding. Christ must always be the arbiter. He must always win in this journey. We got that? So the first picture is Adam and Eve. The second picture is um, Christ and the church. The last thought I think my time is over here, Christoph. Is intimacy. Let's say intimacy. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Reading from the New King James. Now Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Adam knew Eve, his wife. Ah, that's a word that is used in the Hebrew to mean they had sex. They had a baby-making exercise. It means all of those things. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't know. It's like, I want to know you. Carl could say to Ron, I want to know you. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And that word knew means to know by relationship and experience. It does mean sexual intercourse, but it also means to know by relationship and experience. It means to observe, to discern, and to discover. To observe, to discern, and man, please hear me well here. You need to do some observing, 
some discerning and some discovering. Because that's where intimacy is born out of that process. To know by relationship and experience. In other words, according to the standard of this word, it's possible to have sexual intercourse and still not have intimacy. What distinguishes your, your spouse from just another random guy or girl is that you actually have intimacy with that person built up a time. If you don't have that, all you are doing is just having sex. The same thing that people might do with a prostitute. That's transactional sex. You want intimacy. That's what you're demanding. That's what the word proposes. Intimacy. To know by relationship and to know by experience. Which means intimacy in the word of God is spiritual, it is emotional, and it is also sexual. Spiritual, emotional, and sexual. To know that person. We consummate in bed what I've come to know about you. It brings, it brings meaning to sexual, you know, physical intimacy. We consummate in bed what I've come to know about you. What brings character and meaning to men and women coming together physically is the fact that I actually know this person. And so in bed, we are, we are releasing energies of knowledge about each other. There's compassion. Because that person, that man, that woman, is not just another man, another woman. That person, that guy you've been working with, you've just had a conversation about Christ and the convictions of the Lord inside of your own hearts. You know what God is forming inside of him or her. Because intimacy has to be facilitated by conversation. With unveiled faces, 2 Corinthians 3, with unveiled faces, we're beholding one another. We remove all the curtains. I'm not hiding behind anything. And so when we get to bed, we're consummating what we've come to know about each other. There is no man, there is no woman like that man and like that woman. And so therefore, there is no man, there is no woman that you can have sex with in this kind of way. Otherwise, if you remove that, sex is just sexual intercourse, like a physical activity. And the big question for us is, when last did, my, did our physical intimacy, when last was it produced by a sense of intimacy, spiritual intimacy? Do I know you? Do I know you? Do I know you? Do I know you? Do I know this man? Do I know this woman? Do I know what's been your day, what your day has been like? You know? You know, we, we, we men go into our world and we walk back with our shields and spears into, how, into homes. For our wives to know us, we need to leave the spears and the shields by the door. You fight in the world, not here. With unveiled faces. I can lay what Christ is pressing and dismantling. I can be vulnerable to this woman because it's okay. She truly knows me. Because she knows what Christ is dealing on the inside of me. When last did we sit to not talk about bills, but to talk about us and what God is forming on the inside of me. When last did we set a date at dinner to talk about, honey, I want to talk about what God is forming on the inside of me. Because if we live together in the same house, you need to know this. And so in our church, we've coined a term to return. Return. Let's say return. We need to have return conversations. 
There's a picture of Christ before he's crucified. He goes and he returns to his disciples. To return is an intentional process of checking in with your spouse on the basis of the transactions of life that you've gone through. The last thing you want, husband, wife, is to feel like your spouse doesn't quite get you. It's your responsibility for your spouse to get you. You have to make moments to talk about these things. What's forming on the inside of you? What's Christ pressing on the inside of you? And all I'm sharing is, 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 what, is what I'm walking through, but I'm still work in progress. So intimacy is about knowing each other spiritually, knowing the spiritual formation, uh, formative process of our lives. The question is, if we were to put on the spot and say, stand up and describe for us where your husband or wife is, would you be able to do that? Describe with absolute confidence. Give us a map. Let me give you the map of Africa. Which country is he in? <laughs> What is the track of the Lord inside of his heart? What drives him? What breaks him? At what point does he cry when he prays? What breaks him before the Lord? What moves his heart? What moves her heart? Would you as a man be able to describe that for us? And if you can't, here's what I suggest. Go home and say, honey, I realize I don't think I know you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a, we're going to start this, because, you know, to establish culture sometimes, you have to put some structure. Start this. I want us to have coffee. And I want you to articulate yourself to me. I will to you. I understand it might be terrifying, but maybe, maybe, maybe we talk about bills all the time. Maybe when we go out, we talk about the walls and the paintings and everything. Have you seen those couples in the restaurants staring at nothing? We don't want that in this house. And so here's what happens. After the kids have grown and have left, the problems begin. Because then you realize the kids have really been the buffer. So no wonder you get divorces at that age. Like we wonder, after 30 years, how? But actually what's been happening is that we've been project managing a piece of real estate for beneficiaries who are children. Once they're gone, it's like, shucks, who are you? <laughs> I'm terrified by your presence. Your breathing terrifies me. <laughs> You're breathing too heavy for me. It's like, hmm. We never prepared for that moment. Equally, if our intimacy was driven by just sexual intercourse, we equally are inadequately prepared for that moment. Because the moment comes when your flesh gives up what drives the romance. You've got to be in love with that soul. That's what you need to be in love with. It's the soul. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is our redemption point. Without your word, we have no navigation system in this world. Without your word, we don't know where we are. We can't map ourselves. Without your word, we are completely lost in this life. We're drowning in the mud, in the, in the quagmire. 
I thank you that you reach out to us by your word and we see ourselves in your word. We see our current state, but also we see who we can become. I thank you for who I can become this evening. I thank you that your word is my mirror, shows me who I can become, just as it shows me where I am. Thank you for the convictions this evening. Thank you for the resolutions this evening. Thank you for a new start. Oh God, that's where we began in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anybody is united with the Messiah, they have a fresh new start. Thank you for a reality of a new and better. Thank you for deliverance. Thank you for the conversations that are going to happen after this session. Thank you for the testimonies that we're going to hear going forward. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for, for this church, for CityGate. Bless CityGate for what she's doing in the midst of the city. In the name of Jesus. Bless her leadership. Bless her people. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.